Hey, quickly before we get started, if you can get to St. Paul, Minnesota on October 13th, do. We are hosting the hilarious Night of Depression at the Fitzgerald Theater with guests Paul F. Tompkins, Amy Mann, Ted Leo, and Anna Marie Cox. It's going to be a lot of fun jokes and songs and coping. It's going to be a blast. I want to hang out with you. Tickets are available at FitzgeraldTheater.org. Doc says there's something wrong with me. I got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. And usually if we're doing an episode that's a profile of one person, I ask them about where they grew up, what their family was like, when depression came knocking. Because I've learned that those adolescent years, that's when Clinny D often shows up if it's going to show up. Or that's when something shows up or something gets weird and confusing. Thing is, it is such an inopportune time for something like that to happen. Kids are becoming adults. There's an urge to assert independence and to talk to parents less often so the teenager is alone more. There are physical changes, hormonal differences affecting the brain. And also, on top of all that, for an adolescent, it is a small world that they live in. What happened in homeroom can be huge and earth-shattering because there are no decades of wisdom to put it into any kind of context. So we got this idea of doing a show about trying to figure out when something is regular adolescent thinking and behavior and when it's a sign of mental illness that needs to get treated. What's the young person in your life going through? And is it normal and just a phase and even healthy? Or is it something more dangerous? And also, what were you going through when you were young? If you're an adult and looking back at it now, was it garden variety angst? Or was there something deeper happening back there that could help explain what's happening to you now? To get started, we called up our friend comedian Jen Kirkman, and I asked what she remembers of her mental health as a teenager. I didn't know mental health was a thing, if that makes sense. I'll give an equivalent to, I knew my body could get a cold. I knew that it could get a stomach ache. I knew I could get a headache. And then it meant I wasn't dying and it wasn't permanent. Uh So imagine if mental health has that same kind of spectrum where you might have mild depression. It might be circumstantial. It might be this. It might be that. But it's manageable and you can live with it and you're fine. I didn't know there was that realm of mental health. I thought you were either sane or institutionalized crazy. So the equivalent would be, I thought you were either always healthy or stage four terminal cancer. So I had no understanding that anything I ever was going through was possibly mental health. Hmm. I just thought, I'm crazy, or I don't even think I thought I'm depressed. I guess I did think I'm depressed, but I thought, that's me. It's not a condition of the mind that can be fixed. It's just how I am. Mm, it was a mood, you thought. I don't even know if I thought it was a mood. Well, yeah, I guess I did because it wasn't like I was depressed all the time. I actually, I kind of almost missed those days because I was so either very depressed in this very comfortable way or just very excited, but not in a manic way. Just I had unstoppable hope and I had a lot of, I was very aware when I was a teenager. I'm a teenager. This is awesome. Someday I'll have to have a job. <laughs> right. I, I had a good external life, if that makes sense. Like my public school I went to was really cool. I had awesome punk rock friends. I did school plays. I did musicals. I took dance. I took piano. I was in a punk rock band. I wrote poetry. I had a real cushy life. Yeah, sounds nice. It was fun, and I would love to live that way every day today. But so there was this weird happiness inside of me, but there was always this sense, which I now realize is part chemical, but part conditioned, that I'm cursed, nothing works out for me, life is horrible, and anyone not talking about it constantly is just not aware, and they're they're in denial. So it was this arrogance, you know, it didn't always feel like sadness. It, it was anything that could keep me separate from other people I was into. And a lot of times that looked like arrogance. So you had both those things going on at the same time. You had this sort of, 
I'm happy life is good, but also life is miserable at the same time? Yes, constantly. And I always, anything to keep myself separate, you know, not, you know, I'm different than everyone. I'm smarter than everyone. Even my own friends who had the same hobbies and interests as me, they don't get it. I just never felt, and I think that was the teenage brain mental health response to, I don't feel right. Something's wrong. I'm scared. It was that. So I flipped it before I could even feel it into I'm superior. Again, the music of Morrissey helped me pick that as an attitude. I don't know what I would have done without that music, and I'm I'm not kidding. Any song in particular? Oh, no, every single song, especially on Louder Than Bombs. Any song about the Smiths, really. Any song about I'm getting out of this town, everyone here is so stupid, let's think about death. I think Sing Me to Sleep was my first, I think it's just called Asleep, my first favorite song by them, which is really just someone praying that they don't wake up. I thought that was a very smart and deep way to look at things. Sing to me to sleep Sing to me to sleep And then leave me alone Don't try to wake me in the morning Cause I will be gone Don't feel bad for me I want you to know Deep in the cell of my heart I will feel so glad to go I'm sure you've seen the uh, Chris Gethard special or or show about depression. He talks extensively about Morrissey in right, oh, yeah. right around those. Same we have years. that. <laughs> we have that in common. <laughs> yeah, and I. So I don't know. I mean, I when I started having panic attacks, that's when I really felt like this is, this is. I, it's like I had a vague sense. This has to do with psychology. I'm suffering from something. This isn't a choice. I can't think my way out of this. This is something else. What did you say that it was either you're absolutely crazy or you're perfectly fine was this sort of duality that you had in your mind. What did you think crazy was? Literally like, like in cartoons, someone doing that with their mouth Yeah. and sitting in a padded room. I thought crazy meant that See, it's interesting because I think I actually thought crazy was the thoughts you think. I didn't think, oh, a crazy person tries to hurt people or hurt themselves. I really thought you just, it just all bubbles up and gets so intense in your mind that one day it snaps like a volcano and you just, your mind just tweaks until you can't think, can't function, can't speak, and you're literally in a corner going, blah, 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 blah. So I would feel the anxiety, the tension of all these thoughts in my head and the, the moment before you physically panic, this overwhelming rush of helplessness and fear and angst and doom. And it, I would think, if I don't calm down right now, my head will do that thing where it explodes and I'll be in an institution. So I just thought, I'm probably crazy, but I'm really lucky I haven't, as I would call it, exploded yet. I think we're of the generation who learned about mental health from Bugs Bunny cartoons. Was that Bugs Bunny? Yes, that's what it was. Yeah. It was 100% that, because I never saw Cuckoo's <laughs> Nest or anything until I was older. It was nothing I saw. It was totally it was Bugs Bunny. Yeah. Yeah. And and somebody's going to think they're Napoleon. I always thought, well, I don't think I'm Napoleon, so therefore I have <laughs> no right. mental illnesses. <laughs> that was totally an episode. Yeah. Um, you talked about this sort of... Uh, nobody understands me feeling that you had and and sometimes it would come across as almost a kind of arrogance. Did that get you in trouble with other people? Like how did other people receive you and your mental state at this time? No, and that's another part. And it's so interesting to me because now, like as I understand mental health as a spectrum of defense mechanisms and emotions and, you know, it's so many things, not just sad, angry I was also a very much a people pleaser and very good at being good. And I I think that's part of my psychological makeup, part of the way that I kept people from maybe uh, doing things that would hurt me. You know, everything was like, let's control and manage everyone around me. So 
and also then add that into taking dance lessons since I was five. Like sometimes these activities we do really complement our mental state. So being quiet, being told what to do, go here, go here, your arm has to go here, really was made sense to me. So at the same time that I was completely arrogant, it was all going on in my head. Nobody knew. I would never have treated anyone as though they were worse than me or I was better or smarter. It was my own private hell. It was like I would hang out with my friends and go along to get along, and then I would go home and judge them and get into my diary and think, oh, my God, if she thinks that having a boyfriend is going to keep her from dying, she's stupid. You know, why don't we all just get real? You know, it was that. Maybe the only people I felt comfortable being arrogant around were my parents. Mm. Uh, and then what stopped you from going to somebody, you know, either your parents or, or somebody, a friend or whatever teacher and say, hey, there, there's, there are storms in my head and here's what's going on and I don't like it. Like what, was there any like shame or stigma that went along with that? I'm sure there was, but there would have to almost be an understanding that it is okay for me to even call it shame, if that makes sense. Like, for example, sometimes today I might feel shame at being really angry online about what's going on in the world, but part of me knows it's okay to be that angry, but some people think it's bad. Oh, I'm shameful about a very natural thing. To even have shame, I feel like you have to have an awareness that maybe, I, I don't know, I just, I just, it was so black and white to me. If I say something, I'm going to the clink. Oh. That's just, and not because people were judging or think I'm bad, but they would be the same way that if I said hey, I found a lump in my stomach, then I'm immediately going in for surgery. Not because anyone's judging the lump, but just because that's how you handle it. And so I just didn't know that I wasn't crazy. And I think there were a few times when I was maybe 10 or 11 when I started having panic attacks, and they would happen, and I knew, don't tell mom the symptoms because something in me knew this is psychological. It has to do more on the crazy spectrum. Tell her something physical. And I would say, I feel dizzy. I feel like I'm sweating. And she would say, oh, I have that too. And so does your grandmother. And she would take care of me and I lay on the couch and put a cold cloth on my head. And I even went to the hospital once and got a stress test, like an EKG while running on a treadmill as an 11 year old. Wow. And my mom said, oh yeah, it's stress. And it's, um, and it's, uh, she never anxiety or panic. It was, it's stress and it's hormones. And I thought, I don't have hormones. I'm 11. Oh, no, that this is how it was almost like sold to me as that's how puberty kind of works. Like these are the, your hormones are getting kicked up. And then but but I noticed, you know, my mom had anxiety attacks. We've we had gone to the hospital many times with her in the middle of the night. when She thought she was having a heart attack and she didn't. And it was like, I don't know what I actually thought about it, but I knew every time. Oh, here we go. I knew she wasn't. And I knew, I think I have the thing she has. And it was this unspoken thing like, yep, Nana has it, I have it, you have it now. And we just called it stress. Hmm. So then when, when you got that explanation, you must have thought, well, I can't get this treated. This is a, a family tradition. This is normal. This is a, a thing that surely everybody goes through, at least a lot of people. I didn't think other people went through it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, because because I would I would sort of ask friends and and they just didn't have it. So I thought this is something in my family and you know I might have what my mom and nana have but I also think I have something else which of course it wasn't true. I had exactly what they had but since we didn't talk about it I felt like maybe mine was worse or different. But um I remember feeling a little pride. See, this is how strange the mind is. Not everything feels like boo-hoo, I'm scared. I felt pride, which when you look back on it, a kid feeling this way, it's really tragic. I felt really proud that I had stress at age 10 or 11. I thought, I'm a grown-up. I, I just wanted to be an adult. I never wanted to be a kid. And that in and of itself is a way of handling trauma or a chaotic household or something. But I didn't feel it. I just intellectually wanted to be a grown-up, and this was one step closer. I'm stressed. Yeah. Well, because if you're a grown-up, then you can handle it. Then you'd be capable, and you could tell yourself that. Right. And there's one step closer to having control over your life. If I'm a grown-up, something in the back of my head, it wasn't totally named, but I think that somewhere in the back of my head, I thought, when I'm a grown-up, I can come out. You know, I can right. tell people about 
how I feel. And maybe they won't just throw me into an institution. Maybe I'll have some say over it. And then what did it take in your adult life to finally look back on all this stuff and, and see it for what it was and decode it? Like, what, what unlocked that for you? Well, I started getting help with my anxiety in the form of really focusing on my fear of flying when I was about 21. And I took a fear of flying course and it dealt with a lot of cognitive behaviors and reframing, catastrophizing, thinking and breathing. And it was really lovely. And I, it was really interesting. I remember my, I was 21 and my dad used to drive me to the, or 20, my dad used to drive me to the classes because they were at the airport. And I was too afraid to even drive into the airport. I didn't even like to look at planes. And he would sit in on the class with me. And it was a lot of like, it was taught by a psychiatrist. So there was nothing in my family that said psychiatrists are bad. But, you know, it was all protected under, this is a fear of flying. And he talked about anxiety. And every night I had to do these relaxation tapes. And my parents, and I was living with my parents for the summer because I was, I was still in college. And everything was fine. It was like, hey, go for it. That looks great. You know, and my dad seemed to really like the classes. And I just remember thinking, he has this too. Maybe he doesn't have the panic disorder like my mom and Nana have, but he's anxious and feels out of control too. And this is soothing him. Like something is telling him this is, it's okay. So I felt because of that foray into all this stuff with the fear of flying class, I then went to therapy for the first time when I was about 22 for panic attacks. And I was able to tell her, um, I have this thing. It's not just in airplanes. I have it all the time. And, and she started to link it back to childhood. And I was like, what? This doesn't have anything to do with that, you know? And then she even thought of it as, um, you know, I don't know if this exactly worked for me, but it was interesting. She presented it as like, if I wanted to start getting better, I had to be willing to break the family cycle Mm. of having it and keeping it secret. And I needed to drop the rope that connected my mom and me and my grandmother. And I'm like, yeah, I'll do anything, anything to not panic. I'm not resistant to this. I just don't get how that's supposed to make me feel better. But there was a lot of talk about this is cyclical and this is, you know, and I've talked to my mom about it since and she's still just kind of, you know, if she accepts it, then she'll have to do something about it for herself. So she's like, I don't know. I also just really think hormones play a big part in it. (laughs) She still says that. (laughs) She's sticking to the party line. Mm -hmm. They had those classes at the airport. Was that a really good idea or a really bad idea? No, it was amazing because it was, um, I forget what it's called, but you know, when you're afraid of spiders, they make you play with spiders and, you know, that sense thing where you're you're learning to sit and look at a plane and not catastrophize and breathe, feel the physical sensations that come up when you see an airplane. And then we would learn how to um, minimize them. We'd go from a 10 to a, we would always rate our fear and anxiety on a scale of zero to 10. So we are all usually at about 10. <laughs> we, we were hoping for maybe to get down to two. Yeah. So it was, it was unbelievable. I forget that sensory something. Um, it was a Wonderful idea and a really soft entry for me into talking to psychiatrists. And that's, he actually was the one that said to me, because I was the only one that didn't graduate the class with flying colors. <laughs> I panicked on the flight. Your colors travel by bus instead. <laughs> the flight went from Boston to New York and back. And I was panicking the whole time and everyone else is completely cured. And he <laughs> oh, said, no. I said, uh, his whole thing was you can come back once you've paid and taken six months and graduated Anytime you have a flight, you can come back as a refresher. And I just kept coming back to class with no flight booked. And he said, (laughs) you know, it's not like making it look like it works that well to the other students if you keep coming back. And he said, I think you have panic disorder outside of fear of flying. I think you have anxiety all the time, right? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you should talk to someone about that. And I didn't do it for a year, but I held on to that. And I, it was the kind of maybe the first moment that I went, oh, okay. So there's a, there's a scale of mental illness. It's not your normal or in an institution. Right. This is okay. Like he made me feel, I felt a little stupid, but I felt okay. Like maybe there's something I have that's okay. Jen Kirkman, thanks. You're so welcome. Sorry I didn't have much to say on depression, but depression didn't really come until later in life for me. Like childhood was more anxiety and, and all that kind of stuff. Sorry I wasn't <laughs> depressed then, John. Okay. Well, work on that for next time. <laughs> yeah, no. It's, uh, I'll talk to you again soon. <laughs> See you. Bye. Bye. 
Jen was on our show in season one, and looking back, this idea of was I a normal adolescent or was I in fact mentally ill, that question comes up a lot on this program. Let's take a listen back at some of those instances just from seasons one and two. Hi, I'm Margaret Cho. There was goth, you know, you, you could, there was sort of an identity of fashion um, connected to so I was really goth when I was a, a teen and, you know, like I wanted to go to like cemeteries and, and right. um, do like rubbings with the pencil on the, you know, the gravestones and, sure. then, you know, go to like rock shows. And so that then, you know, you had something social attached to your depression, something that kind of was like, oh, this is an identity. Mm. This is kind of fun. And then I was going to this, uh, I was doing a lot of ecstasy. So this, in the eighties, there was a church in Berkeley that sold ecstasy and it was a, it was a church of ecstasy and, uh, it was semi-legal and it, uh, the church sold ecstasy and they also, uh, was a massage school. So it was like, so you would do all of this ecstasy, which really made your depression worse. Um, is it takes, uh, robs you of your serotonin. It sort of lives in your spinal fluid forever and ever. It's very weird. I'm Gary Goleman. My first brush with with real depression when when I had the the, the uh, legitimate symptoms of depression probably was when I was when I was 17 and I I had my first breakup with a with a girl I was in in love with and 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 that was the 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 fallout from that led to my first bout of of depression which which colored the the rest of my the rest of my high school, I was a, a junior at the at the time, and while while I, I would say for the most part I, I I enjoyed the rest of my high school days, there were there was always this um, subtext of loss, and and it's interesting because when I was when I was sixteen, one of my brothers suffered from a, a severe depression, and he sought therapy, and and he went on meds, and he uh, emerged from it uh, stronger, and and hasn't had an episode uh, since. But I didn't think of it as a as a depression. It, it seemed to me to be a a legitimate and reasonable response to this uh, loss that I would want to sleep all the time and and that nothing would make me happy and that my grades would would suffer and I w- wouldn't feel like playing basketball and and it just seemed to be reasonable suffering. I'm John Green. Again, I'm not a psychologist, but I do know that. Um, people with OCD are more likely to experience uh, depression and anxiety. And I've had periods of depression um, in my life, a couple of them fairly serious. And uh, that started for me in high school. And then a couple times sort of, you know, I had a couple of depressive periods in my my 20s as well. Just awful. I mean, just... um, uh, just the night descends, you know, um, as there's a, a great Edna St. Vincent Millay poem that I've quoted in both looking for Alaska and turtles all the way down, um, that, that I just, I just love because it feels, uh, for me just perfect for, for those experiences. It starts, uh, night falls fast today is in the past blown from the dark hill hither to my door, three flakes, then four arrive, then many more. And so there's just that, that initial feeling of like, oh, is this, is this the snowstorm? And then the snowstorm. Hi, I'm Julie Klausner. I started going to therapy as an anxious kid. And then um, around like 13, 14, um, you know, my adolescence definitely took a toll on 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 my mood. And I was just, I mean, surviving high school emotionally was very, very challenging. How so? I, I didn't have a clique. I didn't have a group of friends. I, I, I always like wanted to pursue things outside of high school. I think I was just in denial that I was a teenager and I just wanted to be like, you know, I, I would watch Woody Allen movies that I wanted to be in my 30s drinking Merlot. You know, I wanted to be like outside of my situation. So I lived in my head a lot. Um, and I, I just kind of couldn't see around me and like the, the stuff I learned about sex was from like porn or movies. It wasn't from like fooling around with my peers and everything was just so grandiose and insular that I just sort of never really put in the effort to resolve my personality with my situation. I was like, things are always going to get better after this. I put myself under a lot of pressure to kind of like grow up 
beyond, like, I just grow up quicker. And I just couldn't get through that particular time. It was so muddled. We'll have more of those voices a little later on. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses, not just depression, all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having some laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying it a little bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious illness. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That can be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Thanks to all of our sponsors. You know, listener, dear listener, a lot of times with our sponsors, you hear me give this promotional code to use at checkout, like promo code hilarious, or it might be the URL suchandsuch.com slash hilarious to go to, that kind of thing. I just want to point out, when you use those, not only do you get great deals, but it really helps us out a lot here on the show because the sponsors then see that the Hilarious World listeners, they're a great audience, they buy things, they sign up for things, and then those sponsors, you see, they want to keep sponsoring us, and that keeps the show strong and keeps it going. So use those codes, shop at those sponsors. It's like voting for this program. It helps. Thanks. My name is Patty Harrison. In high school, I hate to break it to everyone, but I was very popular. But not what's fucked up is it wasn't until like the end of my sophomore year when I started drinking alcohol and like I started to go to parties and stuff and like hang out with like kids that are perceived as cool, which I now realize are like 90% horribly dumb, empty people. Um, but that's like, I think when my social life took off and I started to like enjoy high school and like in a way where I think it's kind of a distraction, like just getting drunk all the time. is like a distraction. Self-medication. Yeah. It definitely like affected my, my grades and stuff. And like, I f- did feel like at that point that I was like, what am I doing? Mm. I didn't because that's when I was like, I would feel pangs of like, I hate being like, I hate being a young man. Yeah. I don't feel good in, in any of this. Um, so it was like, well, at least I have a lot of friends and they like me. So it was like seeking affirmation through that. But it's like, oh, maybe they like me just because I throw parties all the time and they can like come and drink my mom's alcohol. Did people that you hung out with in high school know that you weren't really a young man? No. I think the first person that I came out to was after high school. I'm Baron Vaughn. Black people, at least not where I grew up or the time that I grew up, were not being um, told, essentially, about depression. It wasn't something that we, or at least myself, I can't speak for all black people, but I feel like in general, the black community back then was not in touch with that kind of stuff, especially a small town church community like the one that I grew up in. You know, you should probably pray on that was the answer to every question, as opposed to perhaps I should get some therapy. Perhaps I should, you know, see about some sort of medication or get a diagnosis or stuff like that. It's just not part of the language that we're using to communicate um, our emotions. So mental health, stuff like that, was not a part of of what was our world. And in fact, when I started thinking about depression and anxiety and all those feelings, like I didn't see how much racial baggage I had uh, wrapped around those different things because I was like, depression, you mean the thing that white people do? Like I, that's where I went and I didn't even know I thought that until I was thinking about it. So I saw... Depression as something that was for the um, uh, for the well off, I guess you could say that you have the time to sit there and become depressed. 
It's a thing that you get to if you're inactive, which is, of course, a misunderstanding. I'm Linda Holmes. A lot of mental health stuff when I was growing up was masked by the fact that I was um, struggling so much with my weight all the time. I've, I've struggled with my weight all my life. And when you are a fat kid, every time somebody looks at you and you say you're unhappy, the answer is, well, of course you are. We're going to put you on a diet and then you'll be happy and then you'll feel better. And so I don't think I really came to terms with the complexity of mental health stuff until I was old enough to understand that there was a possibility that I had kind of been addressing it backwards for most of my life. And what I really needed to do was deal, deal with the the anxiety and the depression first, <laughs> and that might make it possible to break what were essentially a lot of kind of self-soothing ritual habits about, you know, eating and stuff. Hi, my name is uh, Peter. Should is, is this like, do I have to say my last name? Is I think anonymous? so. Oh, gosh. Yeah, okay. So. I've never done anything like this. My name is Peter Sagel, and uh, at no point ever, ever uh, in my life did my parents or any other um, person, any other person of authority or myself ever say, well, you seem to have a, a kind of a problem. You seem to have... You seem to like have difficulty getting along or you're sad some of the times or, you know, you just come home and you sit in your room and where are your friends and so on and so forth. And, and, and partially that was because I was a very high functioning guy as a kid. In the words of my mother, I was very bright. So I was able, I got good grades. Mm -hmm. um, I was always, especially once I got to high school, uh, deeply involved in all these extracurricular activities. I was like, you know, on this and I was on that and I ran, even ran track one year, which I find hard to believe. Um, or ran cross country technically, and uh, so therefore, if anybody looking at me and looking at my resume, as it were, they saw no problem. And and so you probably thought no problem too. Like exactly. this is the way people ought to be. Right. Exactly. I mean, you know, how do you manage your day? How do you manage getting through your day? Well, you do these things, and people are impressed with these things. Usually, teachers and authority figures rather than my peers. Um, but and that's and that's and that's. That's social success, right? Isn't that what you're supposed to do, mm -hmm. I guess? Yeah. Now, I also want to say, I don't want to paint too dark a picture. I was not the most socially adept kid in high school, no question. But I had friends, and I had friends who I was very, very fond of and on whose, in whose company I, I found a great pleasure and comfort. So I don't, want to, I, I don't want to paint the picture over much that I was this sort of lonely, sad person who, who never had anyone to talk to but my imaginary friend in my <laughs> journals in which I pledged vengeance on all. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> But, you know. Yeah, you considered vengeance on all. I considered vengeance. Pledging is, is too strong yeah, a I term. Know. I mean, yeah. I, I considered it as one of my many options, you know. <laughs> Vast wealth, a huge success, fame, vengeance and destruction upon those who have hurt me. Those were all on my list. Talking about adolescence and mental health, a lot of the comedians and musicians and performers you hear on our show have had the benefit of retroactively figuring out what happened with their mental health when they were younger. But what if your concerns for yourself or someone else are more in the present tense? Jennifer Rothman is the senior manager for youth and young adult initiatives at NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. She coordinates a number of programs around mental health geared toward young people, what to look for, how to get help, how to help others. I asked her what she hopes those programs will accomplish. You know, what we're really looking to do is just educate these young people because what we know is that half of all lifetime cases of mental health conditions are happening uh, before the age of 14. So the younger we can get uh, these students educated about the warning signs of mental illness, what to look for, who to go to for help, you know, that early intervention is key and it can give them better outcomes um, and just the higher rate of recovery. There's so much that kids need to be taught in order to have in their brain. I think they need to be, they're not naturally racist or sexist or homophobic. That's that's a learned behavior. Uh, do you find it easier to reach kids about mental health stigma at an at an earlier age and, and establish those patterns because they don't have a lifetime of thinking, oh, if you're depressed, it's because you're weak? Yeah, you know, I think that's why we're, we're so excited about this youth and young adult initiative and having this Ending the Silence program. It's the, it's the first program that NAMI has that is reaching young people directly that we're actually getting in front of students. Uh, it's meant for ages 13 to 18. 
Uh, I actually found uh, there was one time I went to a middle school. It, I wasn't presenting Ending the Silence, but I was there on behalf um, of NAMI just to educate them and talk to them about mental health conditions. And it was it was refreshing because there were middle school students just coming up to me and saying, oh, well, I take medication for this. And they're saying this in front of all of their peers with no worry mm-hmm. um, of, of what others might think of them. So uh, I think the earlier we can reach them and educate them about this and just get it, you know, in front of them so it's not this odd thing that they don't understand, you know, the better chance we have of, you know, young people feeling confident enough to speak up and say, hey, I'm feeling this way. I don't think it's right. And I'd like to get some help. I know you run some programs for families, too. Is it easier to get through to adolescents or to families? You know, I would say NAMI's got a lot of years behind them of reaching family members. So we definitely have that down pat. Uh, But, you know, it's funny. I think we definitely can reach adolescents a little easier because they are so much more open to it. They don't have all of those years behind them. Um, of knowing the stigma, like you mentioned, but, you know, being able to educate family members, it's just really coming around full circle. So the fact that we, you know, started with ending the silence for students was great. You know, we're educating the kids, we're giving them information, we're telling them who to go to uh, if they're feeling this way, but then, you know, bringing in the fact that we're training school staff on the same thing as well as family members so that when those students actually do speak up and share, you know, some things that they're dealing with, the family members and the school staff are going to be ready instead of, you know, shying away or, or having a, a surprised reaction to it. They're going to be prepared. They're going to have all the same information of the warning signs and who to go to. And, you know, we're just really surrounding these kids with a great support system. One of our guests that we've had on the show talked about how when she was young, she would listen to the Smiths and she was into like, you know, talked about death all the time. And even as an adult, you know, 20, 30 years later, she's still trying to figure out, was I depressed or was I a teenager? Is is it possible to travel back in time and retroactively look at yourself and figure out if, yeah, indeed, I did have something going on? You know, I think we all can. I think many of us uh, do that probably quite often. I've I've thought about, I remember in elementary school, I used to complain of stomach aches all the time. And then all of a sudden, I was going to the counselor's office and drawing pictures, uh, and she was talking with me. And, you know, now that I look back on it, I was like, I was probably experiencing some anxiety, and it was yeah. affecting my body. And I felt, you know, it was my stomach. That's where it was you know, that's where I was housing all of that anxiousness in school. Um, So I'm sure many of us can look back, whether it was the start of a a lifelong mental health condition, or maybe it was a situational thing that we were going through that we may have just felt for six months, a year, um, you know, and then things changed around us and, and we had different responses. But yeah, I think, you know, mental health conditions are definitely getting a lot more attention in the media, which is causing more people to think about it, uh, which in turn, you know, NAMI's definitely getting more phone calls. We're getting more requests. Our local offices, our state offices, you know, we're staying very busy. Jennifer Rothman, Senior Manager for Youth and Young Adult Initiatives at NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Jennifer, thanks. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Jenny Lawson. Even when I was in school and the, you know, tests would come back with reading and writing and they would be extremely high and I would be like, well, you've obviously confused me with someone else. Um, There was never a time when I felt like I got this or I deserve this. Um, Even now, I still feel like at any moment people are going to look around and be like, wait, did we like her? Why did we like, oh my God, she's the worst. And they will realize that I am not who they think that I am. They'll see me for the person that I see me as. I am Andy Richter. 
But I got to college, I went to University of Illinois, and just being on my own and outside of, even as problematic as my support structure was, it was still the support structure. And I really just kind of, I mean, I kind of came apart and, uh, and I went to the, the, I started back into counseling, um, first with a, just a, you know, and they, they give you to grad students basically at uh. school cause it's free and, uh, with a grad student and with well, the first one was terrible. And then I stopped and then I went back in and, and ended up with a really, uh, good therapist. And it was just, it was like the beginnings of being able to organize, Mm-hmm. my feelings and my thoughts and get a handle on them rather than feeling like, you know, I was being attacked by a horde. I'm Mike Drucker. I think high school I started to like, cause I was a very glum kid and I was a, I was a goth kid. Um, I wasn't full on goth cause I could never afford all the trappings of it, but I was like, I hung with goth kid. I hung out with goth kids and I like, you know, thought I pretended I liked gothy music because at the time that was how I got into a group of friends um, but I remember like even amongst goth kids, like, you know, we'd talk about death and I'd be like, I'd be like, but wouldn't it be great if we were dead? And I was like, no. And I'm like, I don't, why, what are we doing? What are we doing? And, you know, I had teachers who were always like, you know, you, I, I had one or two teachers who were good teachers who were like, I think you have depression. I'm like, no, I don't. As if, you know, I had something to gain by denying it. I knew I did. Um, but I why, think, why were you trying to deny it? Um, because it felt like I was already on the outside in so many ways, you know, that admitting I had depression, especially because, you know, and whether you can argue about whether or not being depressed is now kind of chic or it's something that it's more accepted. But like, you know, back then I was like, I know I'm not, that's like something you see in really bad commercials. Like I'm not like a woman looking out through a window during a rainstorm, feeling bad about myself. You know, I'm just, I just don't want to be alive. You know, uh, so I was kind of in denial about it about, for a long time. Hi, I'm Hannah Hart. So, yeah, so in college, I, uh, I went to UC Berkeley. I was very, very proud of getting into that. I still am to this day. Um, it was my reach school, and so I was shocked when I got in. And I was very adamant about going into the straight-edge dorms, um, like no drinking, no smoking, et cetera. Substance and obviously free. Yeah. substance free, right? And we were all under 21. So in theory, wouldn't it all be substance free? <laughs> uh, but at, at my age of 17, I had already been drunk and high a bunch. And I thought to myself, okay, Hannah, God has given you this gift, this blessing, because of course I couldn't have possibly earned it on my own. Like this was God giving me an opportunity. And you know, it's so funny because I think of myself as that 17 year old freshman who had just really earned what I had. And I'm like, I look at that 17-year-old self and I'm like, good job, dude. But when I think about my perspective at 17, I just felt guilt and like debt. I felt like I had to be worthy of this somehow. And I wasn't. Talking with Dr. Sue Swearer, she's the Willa Cather Professor of Educational Psychology at the University of Nebraska. A teenager can sometimes be sullen, be distant, stay in their room. And I keep thinking, like, if an adult that I knew was doing things like that, you would urge them to get help. But for teenagers, it's written off as a typical teenage behavior, like being grumpy and yelling at your parents and all that. Is it really typical? Should it be considered typical? Well, you know, it certainly depends on the situation. And so that's, I think, what's always challenging for parents is trying to figure out what is, quote, typical teenage behavior and when should they be worried. So I think, you know, when I work with parents in our clinic, we talk about what are some patterns of behavior. And so if normally the teenager is pretty happy-go-lucky and they are involved in a lot of activities... And then being sullen and yelling and being in their room is atypical, then that's certainly cause for concern. So are you looking more for the shift in behavior than just the the isolated or gloomy appearing behavior? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think duration too. So if a teenager is in their room for two weeks or a week, you know, then that causes us some concern to say, okay, well, we know symptoms of depression tend to cluster in a two-week period of time. And so if the adolescent is acting moody and irritable for a two-week period of time, then parents ought to be concerned. A lot of parents really resist the idea of giving their kids medication for a depression, for an anxiety disorder, because they say they don't want a kid chemically dependent from age 12 for the rest of their life. And so they go to great lengths to avoid the meds. What, what, where do you come down on that? So I think, again, that's a really, that's a myth and it's dangerous. There are, our medications are much more sophisticated now than they were. Um, I always use the analogy, if your you know, son or daughter was diagnosed with diabetes, would you say, oh, I don't want them to take insulin? Mm. Um, and so our research on you know, kind of brain functioning, brain chemistry has really improved. Not that any medication's perfect, um, but I think it's a mistake for parents to think, oh, I don't want my child on medication. And again, it's back to prevention and having the right doctors and, you know, really seeking the, the right treatment. But I think when we say, oh, you shouldn't be medicated, that again contributes to the stigma that there's something wrong with taking medication. So often when we do interviews for this show and we ask people, when did the problems begin? When did the storm first hit? We so often hear 13 years old, 14 years old, 12 years old, right around the time puberty, adolescence begins. What happens to the human mind around that era that causes that to be the the point so often? Well, mental health difficulties can really occur at any point in time. Um, But certainly we see kind of there's, you know, maybe what we might call hot spots. Adolescence, um, it's a lot of growth and change that's happening in adolescence uh, biologically, um, as well as in in the 20s. So kind of mid-20s is another um, kind of hot spot for uh, difficulties occurring. And then also later in life, uh, 50s and 60s. Mm. Um, And so again, these are just kind of life transition periods. And anytime there's transition, then you could say, well, that's kind of a period of potential upheaval. And how do we all navigate uh, those times of upheaval? So I think it's really important for people to just be very in tune with, okay, my family history, um, you know, my lifestyle, what are my vulnerabilities, um, both physically and and mentally. You talk about that second inflection point around the early to mid-20s. And I've, I've heard about that before as that's when your adult brain finally grows in, like everything is everything is, is finally set and it happens later than you become a legal adult, right? And so what uh, what's going on there? Is, is it just the thing of like, now I've got to go out and, you know, find an apartment and, and get a job? Or is there something going on with the brain? Is there like a, a, a new puberty going on right then? Well, I think just as we look epidemiologically at different points of onset of mental health difficulties, for whatever reason, the teens, the 20s, the 50s seem to be, you know, kind of points of um, onset, if you will. Um, so I think there's lots of kind of factors. And, and again, everybody's so different um, that there's not just kind of one etiological kind of mechanism that's taking place. There's a lot of interactions between environment and biology. May I ask, and this is a setup to a follow-up question, how long have you been at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln? Yeah, so I've been here for 21 years. 21 years. What have you seen over those years in terms of awareness of mental health at that school? Yeah, so certainly I think this is just a, a phenomenon in the in the country and maybe the world where um, organizations and universities and schools and communities are really trying to bring awareness to uh, mental health issues in terms of reducing the stigma or stopping the stigma just are really important. And, and celebrities who speak out about mental health issues, um, I think, are very, very important to normalizing the conversation. And so certainly in my 21 years of 
being a psychologist and being at the university, um, we talk much more openly about suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety, OCD, um, mental health conditions that maybe in the past would have been euphemistically talked about, like, oh, the nervous breakdown <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, so I think that's really healthy that we talk very openly about mental health uh, conditions, just like we talk about cancer or diabetes um, or, you know, I broke a leg. Um, it's, I think, very important that we normalize um, talking about mental health. Dr. Sue Swearer at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is our web and social media luminary. Kate Moose is executive producer. Our intern is Nikki Pedersen. Hi, Nikki. Welcome aboard. Recording engineers Veronica Rodriguez and Corey Schreppel. Technical director Zach Rose. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. That 8255 spells talk. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting a conversation like this can be awkward. Make It OK has tips on what to say, what not to say. It has stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. HilariousWorld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter. And come visit us on Facebook. A lot of great conversation happening over there with your fellow Thwadballs. New shows being formed. It's a good hang. On our next episode, comedian Chris Gethard tries to make his mom comfortable with the facts. And I remember that was the first joke. I'd go, Mom, I'm crazy. You got to remember I'm crazy. She'd go, you're not crazy. Don't say you're crazy. And I'd go, I am crazy. I'm on pills. You want me to show you the pills? What do you think the pills are for, Ma? You see the pills in the medicine. You see the pills on my dresser? You think, the, what do you think? I got heartburn? You know what they're for. I'm crazy. You know I'm crazy. And then she'd be laughing. And then my dad would laugh. And then my brother would laugh. And then everybody's guard went down because of jokes. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Something I don't know